You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I am joined by Aaron Lammer. Hey. Max Linsky. Hello. Happy holidays. Last episode of 2016. What a year. What a ride. <laughs> Fuck this year. Remember when we used to have the vigor to do like end of the year super cuts? That was only once. That was only was once. It? Remember and, that one and time? it was in the summer. <laughs> and it, it wasn't the end of the year. But every year I do think about doing that. <laughs> Remember that one time where Aaron did all that work on that supercut? Yeah, nearly killed me. It's a great show. <laughs> yeah, uh, Evan, I understand you have a very special guest. This That's week. right. I talked to Tanahasi Coates. Came back on the podcast. Uh, I'll talk to Tanahasi pretty much any time. But the occasion for this, listeners may know, is that he has a big story out in the Atlantic cover story called "My President Was Black." Gave us a chance to talk about that, the time he spent with Obama, how the story came about, and also. Uh, what he's been up to in the last year and sort of what it's like to be Tanahasi Coates right now, uh, which is uh, pretty amazing considering the first time we talked was three, four years ago and he was in a totally different place. I'm really looking forward to the 20th anniversary Tanahasi Coates where you guys do a 20 year look back once a year. I'll tell you what we just did uh, on longform.org a look back at the uh, best stories of the year. Tanahasi's story, uh, very late entry in the politics section. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But uh, cut. we have all kinds of stories, our favorite stories of the year. All the editors got together and they picked their favorite stories. They are on uh, longform.org. One of the things list. that I enjoyed this year uh, when we were putting together our top 10 list was looking over it and realizing that the majority of what I took to be the best 10 stories of the year were by writers that we've had on the show. So read the top 10, then go back and listen to the podcast. Particularly, I will say, my conversation with Shane Bauer. That was a great podcast. And plug them. Plug your own. Our number one story of the year. And I got one more plug, which is there's a new Out of His Magazine story out. It's called Prince of the 40 Thieves. It's at magazine.outofhis.com. It's a great crime story. Check it out. Yes. Max, you haven't plugged anything. I just plugged our list. That was my plug. Oh, yeah. I'll plug our sponsor, MailChimp. Yeah. Once again, making this... Like uh, I feel like we say this and people maybe don't uh, understand... Actually, the show is made possible by MailChimp. Mm -hmm. Once again, in 2016, they made it possible for us to do this. Uh, we really genuinely appreciate it. If you need to do an email newsletter, you should use MailChimp, both because it is the best and because 14 million other people use it, 
and also because they have supported the show and therefore you'll be supporting us. And shouts to all the good people at MailChimp who make the decision to support the show and also convey an ethic uh, in what they do that I think radiates out to their product. So good people, good email, MailChimp. Good podcast. And uh, this is our last one of the year. We're taking next week off. We'll see you in 2017. Here's Evan with Tanahasi Coats. All right. Well, again, again. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Tanahasi Coats. This is number four. <laughs> actually, the funny thing is, I listened to, I actually listened to all three. Yeah. And I swore that I would not start by saying, you're the first person to be on the show four times. Like, I feel like we should do, we're going to be doing this 10 or 12 times. And every time I'm going to say, uh, you're the first person to appear 12 times on the Long Form Podcast. But I did want to start something where we talked about last time. Yeah. I want to talk about comics. Oh, that's beautiful. We're going to talk about. Wait, hold on. The thing I have to ask before we go there is, at some point, are you going to be like, you can't come on here anymore? <laughs> No way, man. Especially, it's almost like a yearly tradition. Yeah, it's yeah, It's like right. my favorite thing right. about the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once a year, we can sit down and talk. Right, which means I have to keep writing. Like, I actually write something if I want to get on the podcast. You don't even. We could just... <laughs> eventually, we'll just be uh, right. just recycling right, old, right, 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 right. old ideas. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but last time we talked, we started talking about the comics, and I admitted I never read a comic okay. in my life. And then I came in, I saw you were reading comics. You actually do research. I went into, I felt like a kid again. I went into a comic store. Uh-huh. There's a comic store on Parkside Avenue, Flatbush. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I went into this comic store, uh-huh. and I asked for Black Panther comics. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I said, And I said to the guy, I'd never read a comic before, so uh-huh. he just like show me. Because it's confusing in there. Right. And there were three teenage kids sitting in there, teenage, early 20s maybe, uh-huh. Literally, when I walked in, they were talking about like their favorite superhero, and they uh-huh. were arguing about like someone's powers versus someone's power. It was uh-huh. like a movie. <laughs> and then the guy, he said, "Oh yeah, yeah," and he gave me the the Black Panther comics. I asked him what he thought of them, and he was uh-huh. like, "It's good, man," but he's he's really expecting you to like read them all. Like, it's a real <laughs> yeah, slow burn. Yeah, yeah, but I, that's a roundabout way of saying that I I read the first two Black Panthers that you uh-huh. wrote, uh-huh. and a thing that occurred to me that had never occurred to me before uh-huh. when we talked about it. We talked about it as a kind of diversion from your normal right. writing. Does it feel like a diversion? Well, then when I read them, I said, actually, this feels somehow uh, part of the other writing. That's a great point. Um, this is very interesting. Like, if you look at somebody who does nonfiction and fiction, can you see that they're dealing with the same problem or the same sort of thing? And I, I actually think you're right. I think I am. To say that, you know, somebody like me, writes about race in America is true, but kind of not true because race is just an overlay for some other thing. My buddy Jelani Cobb, he often says that um, it's almost as if someone were performing an experiment on how wide the umbrella for like enlightenment could actually be. And we're using black people as some sort of control. Like, what does it look like if you keep that group out? Hmm. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> And it's that's not the fact that the people are black. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not like like it's not the fact that people are black and white. It's that you have a group that is in a position within a society, and that's actually what you're studying. You know, you're studying how broad democracy can actually go. You have this theory, you know what I mean, and you're trying to test it. Mm-hmm. And the group that you use to test it is the group that you know, among other groups, but it's pretty pretty far out of the umbrella historically in terms of protections. 
But that's almost like a, a, a philosophical, political question. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so it gets caught up in, in, in identity and who you are, which is obviously part of that. But when I read, you know, about the history of Europe, which is like one of my, you know, sort of favorite pastimes, you mm-hmm. know, um, you see the same sort of questions being asked. Like the questions are actually not that different, mm-hmm. even though theoretically, you know, you think that they're not talking about race, but power is always there and how power is used is, is already there. So I say all that to say that when I went, you know, to comic books, you know, I'm talking about a society where in this mythical kingdom of Wakanda where everybody's quote unquote black. I mean, what does that even mean, at the, you know, when you're talking about, a, you know, a society like that? Right. The questions I'm asking are very much the same. You know what I mean? Questions of democracy, questions of, you know, political leadership, questions of contradiction. So in this case, in the comic books, you have Wakanda and they've had a king for all of these years. But it's also supposed to be the most technologically advanced country in the world. You know, and theoretically, I guess, you know, the most educated country in the world. If that's the case, why would they tolerate a king? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. You know, and at the point I came to the comic, a king who had, or a monarchy, I should say, who in recent times had actually failed to protect the country. Mm-hmm. Would an educated, enlightened populace tolerate that? You know what I mean? Or would they, you know, think about other things? So, yeah, you're exactly right. It is, I guess it is of a piece, you know? I am, yeah, I had to approach it with the brain I had, you know? Like, I couldn't, <laughs> you know, these were the problems I was, I was already thinking about, you know what I mean? And so I was given this comic book. It's like if I were writing, I don't know, no, no disrespect to anybody right now because it's very tender, but if I were writing Captain America right now, right? Um, I don't know that I would like be writing about race, mm-hmm. but in some profound way, I probably would be writing about race. Do you know, like, like the, the the actual problems, I still would be confronting those. You know, it's not that literally the skin color that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's the, the the historical proposition, the experiment, the story is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and you can play that out across any degrees of genre. It's been played out, you know, with other groups across history, with you know details changed here and there. Yeah. You know? And I mean, it's not like I'm trying to make a direct comparison between the Atlantic cover story and the comics, but this idea of this leader who's like struggling with these people who uh, he's trying to balance, you know, it's, I guess in any sense, like anything about politics or leadership is going to sound at some basic level the same, but there did seem to be some cross-cutting themes. Hmm. I think I'm very interested in people who are in positions that maybe they didn't think they were going to end up being in, in powerful positions, positions of power, mm-hmm. um, who are actually uncomfortable with the usage of power. Um, and I'm trying to say this without being too self-aggrandizing. A lot of that's me, actually. When I was writing Black Panther, what was happening was between the world and me was coming out mm-hmm. and was out. You know what I mean? And actually, even before that, that started with, with Case for Reparations. And... I was feeling myself to be in a position that I didn't necessarily ask to be in, you know, but that I actually was. And I was, you know, trying to figure out, like, in my mind, like in my personal life, I was trying to figure out how to be responsible to that and how to be in that same way. And so I I think some of that went into the character. And you're right. At the same time, I was, yes, I was thinking a lot about the president in that way, too, you know, who... um, never struck me um for whatever you know critique i might have i never struck me as, as somebody 
who like would want to be president for life. Mm-hmm. Like that just didn't seem like he was how he was wired or how he was set up. There's some people who really need it who like, you know, being in these sorts of positions. And I just never quite got that off of him. So, yeah, some of that is in there, too. You know what I mean? All of that has been like swirling around in my head, you know? Yeah. Well, that idea of something that is an end product of your work, uh, right. then sort of becoming a burden in some way. Yeah. And then how do you deal with that? Even if, in fact, especially because outside people would look at that burden, whether it's fame or money or whatever right. comes from it and say, well, who wouldn't want that? Isn't that what you wanted all along when you were writing? Yeah. I mean, you know what I wanted? <clears throat> and they're kind of right. Let's just stipulate that. I mean, one way of thinking about this is life will always be a problem no matter what. And the choice is some people have better problems than other people. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I would trade this for 15 years ago when I was like delivering food and working part-time at the Village Voice and trying to figure out, you know, and had a one-year-old kid living in a basement. Like I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade, you know what I mean? And so that, that, that's not it. I didn't understand that it's always a problem. Like I didn't appreciate that <laughs> enough that you can get whatever you want and, you know, it'll be a problem. So what I wanted was the ability and the freedom to tell the stories that really, really moved me. I think all writers on some level want that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And for most of my career, I just, I didn't have that. And then when I got it, and maybe even the way I got it, it came with other things. And that I did not expect. And that I was completely, and am completely unprepared for. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect people to come to start seeing me, you know, like as a certain way. I didn't expect people to come look, you know, I think there have been way too many movies about writers that make it look romantic. <laughs> and so I think like when you write something that people really, really feel, they think, like, you're magic. Like, they think, like, it's you know what I mean? Like, it's you, it's your talent. They did it, you know what I mean? And they don't see you eating, like, shit and, you know what I mean? Like, just not, you know, skipping showers and, you know, all the crazy things that, you know, you do to, you know, to, to get on deadline, stressing. And this piece, for instance, I'm going to tell you, when we were closing this piece, the week of it, I came home so depressed. I said to my wife, I said, I said um, this is not up to standard. You know, it doesn't match all the other things I've done here at The Atlantic. It's just not there. And everybody's going to know it now. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the one where they see it. And she was like, it can't be that bad. I was like, it's bad. It's not. It's just not what it should be. She said, all right, whatever. <laughs> so I went through that for a few days. And then when we finally closed, I said, okay, actually, I think it is up to standard. I mean, there are things that I would have done differently and I wish I could have done. But what I'm saying is all of that, you know, sort of mental stress, like you still, it doesn't matter how talented or how much report, you got to write the article, man. Yeah. And that's the process. Right. What you, I guess, come to find is that that never goes away. It never goes away. You can't make it go it away never, by I, selling a certain number of right, books or having right. certain oh, people want to hear your opinion. Oh, it never goes away. And you know what? Like when I was, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here kind of, you know, criticizing people for thinking it's magic. I thought it was magic. Like when I was like, say maybe my first, second, third year, my notion was the more experience you got in writing, the easier writing became. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of not true. And maybe it's that your standard goes up every time. Like maybe that's what happens. But I can definitely tell you the basic emotions I felt from the first pieces I wrote for Washington City Paper have not changed in 20 years. Mm-hmm. You're doing the same thing over and over again, and the challenge of it does not change. You know what I mean? No matter you know the awards, no matter the level, it just doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, in some ways it might get harder, but it definitely does not get easier. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. that, and so I think you can see the end product and think, Jesus, like this. Like, this is magic, but it's not. It's so not. (laughs) 
Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly to give you a word from our sponsor, Casper. I'd like to ask you, how is your mattress? How are you feeling about your mattress? If you're not feeling great about your mattress, you should replace your mattress because you spend like a third of your life on it. However, do not go to a mattress warehouse. I do not encourage you to do so. You will have a horrible experience. Instead, go to Casper. They give you an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price that comes straight to your door in a box that does not seem like it would fit a mattress, but somehow, lo and behold, there's a mattress inside. Not just any mattress, a mattress with springy latex and supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. What award, you ask? How about Time Magazine naming it one of its best inventions of 2015? It is an award-winning mattress that will not disappoint. They've got free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada, and you can try it for 100 nights risk-free in your own house. If you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you everything. That's what I'm talking about. Made in America. I want you to go to casper.com slash longform, put in promo code longform, you get 50 bucks towards any mattress you like. That's 50 bucks for listeners of the show. Again, casper.com slash longform, code longform. Thank you, Casper. This show is additionally brought to you by Audible. If Audible does not have an audiobook, I generally assume it does not exist. That is how ubiquitous their supply of audiobooks is. They've had many people who've been on this show. Um, in fact, I actually sometimes will go listen to an author reading their own book in preparation for interviewing them so I can get an idea what their voice sounds like, what their whole vibe is. Uh, in his long year absence for the show, I uh, I kept the flame alive for Ta-Nehisi Coates by uh, listening to him read his own book. And there are countless other authors doing the same thing. The best part for our listeners is that you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial membership by going to audible.com slash longform and browsing the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download one. Start listening today. It's that easy. Again, audible.com slash longform. Free audiobook, 30-day trial membership, and you're supporting the show. Thank you, Audible. You wrote this thing, I think it was in May or over the summer, this whole issue about like you, you bought this house and then it got publicized. Yeah, that was fun. Um, yeah, <laughs> and in a piece that you wrote about that controversy, if you want to yeah. call it that, you wrote, I want you to know that I've been struggling in these past few months to write about politics. I feel people all around me uninterested in questions and enthralled with prophecy. Yeah, yeah. And so it seems like that layered on top of right an everyday writer's right. angst right. did you feel was it something akin to like writer's block or no. was it more just like no I, it's like I, I feel like i can't give you what you want right now mm -hmm. like what you want like you have come to see me as somebody with answers but i don't actually have answers and i've never had answers and the questions are the enthralling thing for me not necessarily at the end of the thing getting to somewhere you know that's that's complete it's it's the asking that that and, uh, you know, repeated asking, and I don't know how that happened, but I felt like after a while, like, it got to the point where it was like, I was seen as having unique answers. And I just didn't. You know, yeah. I, I, I really, I really, really, really didn't. It's something you know? we've talked about in at least the last two times we've talked. Have we? Yeah. Have we really? And, this is a consistent thing, huh? Yeah, that... That, that, that means I need to get over it. No, no, no. Just, no, I was, that, that actually was going in a different direction, which is sort of like your position of it has been consistent that you're not sort of a solutionist no. in your writing and your questioning and also that you don't guarantee that or believe that the outcome is necessarily positive in right. our lifetimes. Right. 
but then the problem of people wanting that keeps getting worse. Yeah. But, I yeah, mean, yeah. for you. I mean, how do you like, like one of the things I think about is I, I think like long form journalism straddles this place between art and maybe all journalism is this way. I, I, I don't know. But even when I'm writing about the most weightiest stuff in the world, right? Like, or even when I, it looks like I'm doing something that is overtly political, like, say, writing about mass incarceration, writing about reparations, none of that has meaning to me without the story. So if I had to go write reparations and I can't go talk to Clyde Ross, you know, this 91-year-old dude on the west side of Chicago... Who's gonna tell me his life? Like I don't. I'm not gonna write a position paper mm-hmm. for reparations. I'm not gonna write a brief, you know, on what mass incarceration has done. That's not to say that, you know anything against people who do that. I'm not gonna write a thirty thousand or forty however long between the world and me was about like Black Lives Matter. I'm just not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that unless I can go talk to Prince Jones's mother. You know what I mean? Unless I can have some sort of experience that is, frankly, always deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> But unless I can do that, unless there's a story is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not really interested. Yeah. It's not the answers. And and that's, it's so weird to be that way, right? Because I understand, like, people see you're taking on reparations. That must mean, like, the dominant thing here is that you're advocating for reparations. Well, yeah, I mean, but actually that's the the back thing. Mm -hmm. The dominant thing is to tell the story that just hasn't, you know, really you know, been there or, or, or hasn't, you know, in, in, in some ways properly understood. Obviously, I have my political opinions. I make them known. I write about them. I'm not saying that. I definitely do. But when it comes time to write five, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 words, man, it, it needs to be like the story is the thing that keeps me going. That's mm-hmm. the thing that deeply interests me. The narrative always, always, always. And, you know, if that narrative can serve, you know, towards something that, you know, I think, you know, needs to be true about the world, that's fine. But it's the narrative first, you know? I mean, the coolest thing about writing this piece was, and if you look at it tonally, like, like the Obama piece is very different than really short sort of op-ed stuff I, I've done on the site about him, right? Yeah. And that's, this is like just more like a straight feature on the president of the United States. Yeah. It you felt, know? I mean, it felt like very much a companion to Fear of a Black President. Yeah, yeah right, 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 right. I mean, there's right. like, in particular, these three smaller narrative threads Shirley Sherrod right. Henry Louis Gates that's true Trayvon Martin that's true those three yeah. are connected and also the fact that you have like a tendentious quote from David Brooks in both of them right oh I do in both of them <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm sorry David <laughs> um, yeah no it's like uh, this was the first time in a long time I actually just got to sit back and profile somebody Yeah. which in and of itself is interesting you know what, what makes this person tick you know what I mean? Like, if I had to, like, do with, say, somebody like Jonathan Chait does at New York Magazine, and I read Jonathan all the time, and I think he's a, just a beautiful and fine polemicist, but I, I can't live like that. Like, I just I just, I just, just can't. You know what I mean? I, that's, not, that's actually not who I am in, in my heart. I do some of that. But in my heart, if you said, okay, you have to leave that stuff that you've done at the Atlantic, or you have to, you know, leave like a piece like this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's obvious. And in fact, I guess what's happened over the past years, I've actually left the other stuff. Yeah. It seems like it's just different when people care whether you voted for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, like, no, that was right. like, like a big care. Like, thing. Jesus. Oof. Like it's you you can't just opine on it. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. People actually care and they think that who you voted for should have some sort of influence over who they voted for. That that scares me. 
Like that. Don't, you know what I mean? That scares me. Because who I voted for is like based on like things that might like I might would sit around, you know, with you while we were having beers and talk about, right? It's not based on like it's not the same as like the case for Red Red. Like it's not researched deeply, you know, fa- like it's not the same thing. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't have the same sort of force of research and intellect behind it. You know what I mean? Like it's just me as a private citizen, you know? And so don't base it on that, dude. You know what I mean? But that's what I mean about how when people see the work, they think that there's something unique, you know, going on in your brain. And so therefore, your advice should be solicited on everything else. We should just talk for a moment about the crazy things. And I'm about to offend a bunch of people, but I don't care. Um, We should just talk for a moment about the crazy things I get offered now. No names, but somebody offered me to direct a music video. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Did they ask for like a specific like take the same frame that you used in between the world and me and apply the, it to this? They sent the letter to my agent and I was just like, what, what is this? Why would I be able to do this? Like, why would I? You know, it, it, it is wow. It is wow. So it's not even just like the people who read me because I, you know, I don't. It's everyone. They, they think because you and see that's how you like you see celebrities from time to time and you watch them. You're like, what the hell just happened here? That's why. That's why. Because they say yes to Be- that. Yes. Well, I mean, who wouldn't want to direct a music video? That sounds awesome, right? Except you don't know how to do it at all and you've never done it in your life. You know what I mean? That's the only not awesome thing about it, Well, right? they probably put a bunch of people around you who knew how to how to do it. Yeah, but come on, man. But you're not, That's probably what they would do, right? And then they would use your name, right? But you didn't direct anything. Come on, be real. But that's what happens. People, you know, I mean, you... See, I'm 40. You know, I have sympathy for, like, athletes... And like rappers and those sorts of people, right? Say you're 18, 19, 20, 21, and you do something that has all of this impact and you're, you know, making all of this money and people just come up to you. Because they do. They do and just offer you things. And you look and you say, why is that person doing that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, because, you know, because they offered. Yeah. Because they offered. You know what I mean? And so, like, it's just like the things that people just. Again, no names, but there are like really rich people who hold secret meetings and like will invite you to come to them. What kind of secret meetings? Like I have no idea. Group because kind I've of secret n- meetings? I don't like, know. Because uh, I've never gone, actually. I've never gone because it scares me. You understand what I'm saying? It just, it really like, if I'm going to meet with a bunch of rich people and I can't tell anyone what we talked about. Probably and they want to pay you or they just want to bring you into no, this it's like, usually, club? It'll be, you know, the couple of advice I got, you know, it might be a somewhere, you know, really nice and usually bucolic and you know what I mean? It's not like, like I do for the Atlantic Aspen Ideas Festival, right? But that's all out in the open and you can mock me for doing that. You know what I mean? And that's fine. That's okay. You know what I mean? Because it's public that that's what I did. But I mean, Jesus, man, like secret things, secret, secret things. Listen, this never gets out to the press. You can bring your whole family, stay the whole week there. I mean, just... I'm like, dude, I just tell stories. Like, I'm not trying to take over the world. Have any things come to you that you have done and you've thought, like, wow, this is an opportunity I never would have had before? The comic book. The comic book. The comic book. Definitely the comic book. Yeah, 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 yeah the comic book. And then you've brought some other writers into that. I have, I have, I have. And that's been really, really exciting. And most of the folks, if not all of the folks, I've brought it. See, that's different because, like, like, in my mind, I wasn't just writing the Black Panther. I was going to learn how to do comic books, and I hope to do this in some fashion for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. That's that's the hope. I really, really enjoyed it. You know what I mean? So, whereas if I'm directing a music, I wasn't going to go start. Like, I wasn't going to have a new career directing music videos. 
Maybe, right? I don't know. <laughs> and then you like bring Roxanne Gay into drag music <laughs> right, right, videos. Right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to go back. I want to go back to the to the Obama piece because I do mm-hmm. want to talk about the mechanics and process of it a little bit. Right. Um, it's in there and talked about that you spent a fair amount of time yeah. with him. Yeah. And I feel like this is the kind of thing that in the president's last year, oftentimes he's. They get more open. They do right. a lot of things, and the temptation is just do a Q and A. Right. Do a long Q and A. That was a temptation. That was, and and the other piece of that was we did not have much time. Yeah. Like, um, so I did the reporting. Hell, I mean, I was reporting up until the, to, to like like a day before closing, but um, I did the the bulk of the reporting between September and October. The piece first draft had to be in by November, so that's about two weeks to turn around. What ended up being about seventeen thousand words. That's tight. That's tight, isn't it? Very tight. That's tight. That's pretty tight. And did they had did they reach out to you or the Atlantic at some point and say, okay, we want to open up a little bit? Or no, had you been knocking on no, the door? No, been knocking on the door. Been uh-huh. knocking on the door. I mean, I think um, he had me down a couple times um, to debate. You know, at these off the record, you know, luncheons, and that was fine. And after that. But I didn't know where I stood. Like, in fact, I didn't even know why they were having me because I clearly didn't agree with them. So I didn't know why they were having me in the room. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but you know, it turned out he liked the debate, and that was fine. And then he sent me a very, very nice note about between the world and me. And he said something to the effect of, you know, uh, why don't we have lunch and you can, you know, try to convince me of how naive I am, and I can try to cheer you up. <laughs> so I immediately rushed. Listen, we need to get this scheduled. <laughs> And I wrote them, and they they got it, you know. I and, and even then, I didn't. I had no confidence because it's not just the president. I mean, it's like the whole like you, there, there's you know people around him, you know, who may or may not, you know, think it's a good idea for you know you guys to be talking. So I wrote them back and said, you know, can we you know do this? And they were like, yeah, pretty quickly too. I was shocked, pretty quickly. They were like, okay, yeah, let's do it. So I f- I was living in Paris at the time, so I flew over in April, had lunch, and I'm thinking, I you know, and I told you know everybody at the Atlantic, you know, um. Well, let's just say I, I would not have done this if I could not, at the end of the lunch, ask if we could do this piece, like if if, if he was up for this piece. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the whole thing, you know. And I don't know if they, uh, I had already, we had already been asking, so I know I know that it was somewhere in the air. I don't know whether it had gotten to him or not. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but we had been asking about the possibility of it. And I was pretty clear that other people were going to be asking, like mm-hmm. to do that piece. Like mm-hmm. we would not be alone in wanting to do that, right? For sure. Um, but we talked for a while and we, you know, went back, rehashed the debate again, went back and forth a little bit, you know, and he said, you know, at some point we should do this publicly, you know, um, and I think he was more talking about like a forum or something like that. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, well, as it happens, we would love to do something like this, you know, in the pages of the Atlantic, you know, would you consider, you know, granting, you know, us, us an interview for it? And he said, uh, the short answer is yes, let me just, you know, get the timing figured out. And from then, we were on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't really come around. The summer was pretty much lost. It didn't really come around to the fall. And even then, you know, I wasn't sure how much time I was going to get. So initially, they committed to one and said, we'll see how it goes. Did the one. And they said, okay, we'll commit to two. And then at the, I made it known at the two, listen, we got to do a third. And so then they did a third one. And I, I kind of structured every interview around a particular subject. Mm-hmm. Um and then after, you know, Trump won, I called him back. And I said, I, you know, we, we need to talk again. And at first they didn't want to, but then they decided to. And so we talked about for about 15 minutes after that. So, And you you actually talk about in the piece those earlier conversations that you'd have with him where you get yeah. invited in. And you talk about sort of like almost like feeling like you blew it or just like that in one case you felt too 
you came on too strong. In another case, you felt too meek. But it was sort of these like confusing yeah, yeah, situations, yeah, and like that he was just a powerful intellect that it was difficult to sort of like yeah it wasn't with. it so wasn't like, even like it was the president it was just like you were debating a really smart dude like yeah it wasn't even like it wasn't in t- i mean there was some of that but that wasn't you know what i mean that, that that goes with the job man i mean you you talk to people who have more power than you and you pose questions for them. I mean, the same with bill cosby easier to accept i'm not saying you don't have fear and you don't have that but you understand that that's part of it and so you do it you know it's like a football player like you might you know have the jitters but you're going to go play the game period mm-hmm but I wasn't prepared, like, for just how smart he is, you know. Um, and let me rephrase that. It's not smart. It's knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. It's depth. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, he's going to go in. And, and frankly, you know, it's not even just that he's a black president, but an African-American president who's thought a lot about race. So you're not going to go in and have a conversation with him and he'd be good on the Middle East, good on the environment, good on tax policy, and then just sort of, you know, blather about race, nah, man. I mean, he he knows it. He knows it, and so it's to me, it's like going to talk to an African American studies professor. Like you're going to debate with somebody like that who just happens to be president of the United States. And so, nah, I, I wasn't particularly prepared for that. But then it was just like, what am I supposed? What am I trying to achieve here? Mm-hmm. Like, am I trying to get answers out of him? Am I trying to get my point across more clearly? Like, what you know? So there's a lot of, and then to be honest with you. Man, the second time, that was the one where I came on too strong. The second time, you know, you're supposed to wear a suit, and I didn't wear a suit. There's a picture of this somewhere. I'll find it. You know, I had jeans and a blazer on, and I was supposed to be there at a particular time, and I was catching a train down, and I was late, and it was raining, and I didn't have an umbrella, and I was, like, wet when I came in, and all the reporters were there, and it was like, like, the first time it was, like, progressive folks, but this time it was just people from high level, you know, mainstream media. So I wasn't prepared for that. Everybody's dressed in these dark suits and I'm stumbling in. Oh, and he is literally sitting where you're sitting. And I sit down and he's answering some question. He says, nice of you to join us and just keeps going. And I'm like, okay. All right. <laughs> that is like a professor. That's like showing up at a yeah, seminar. Yeah, it was. It was that's, that's exactly nice what it's like, right? Us. Right. Nice of you to join us. That's what he said. And then, you know, and that was the one where I was running a little too hot, I think, because I had, you know, all, all of that, you know, sort of energy and everything. But I, I never quite figured out, you know, I never covered the White House press corps. So I don't, I wasn't quite, and I've never been in situations usually. You know, when you're writing law when you spend a lot of time with one particular person, it's rare that you have like 10 other people with you and you're, you know, so it wasn't quite, you know, was I taking up other people's time? Was I, you know, and the first time I, you know, asked, you know, what I felt was pretty much a softball question. And the second time when he responded to what I asked, I didn't ask the softball question, but when he responded, you know, I literally said, can I respond? And he said, sure. And so we went back and forth for I don't know how long. So, and I think I can say all of this, you know, um, like they're all, no one else in the room is black. It's only me and him. And this was like the most, I think I can fairly say it, it was the most contentious exchange that happened mm-hmm. there. All of the other journalists were like looking like, what the hell is going on here? Like, literally, I looked around, and, I, and I, I can't remember who was next to me, but I looked, and they were all like, what the fuck? What is going on? These two black dudes are fighting? Like, you know, because that was the only time, like, it really got into a back and forth, you know? <laughs> um, and so after that, I was like, I don't think I'm coming back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was like, I'm not getting it. But they actually did. I came back one more time after that, and then, you know, for, for the book. And, um, you know, he was always very clear he felt i think that i was unfair to him a few times you know what i mean i was that i was you know unfair and he said it 
<laughs> you know, and he said it. And what was weird was even after those things, like I didn't really like you can read things I wrote after those meetings, you know, like I would still be critical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was still invite back. So. And in this yeah. one, did you have a sense? I mean, it sounds like it happened really fast, had to right. all be put together really fast. But it when did. you walked in the room, you had three, you structured the three interviews around three topics. Yeah. But did you have in your mind the narrative of? No. No, no, no. In know, fact, what is the story of right, this Right, president? right, right. That's, oh, man, you're, you're so getting to the problems, right? Because what they asked for the press office, they was like, okay, so what, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is, and what I told them initially, because I just didn't have any other, you know, how you come up with a theory or story when you've done no reporting? Like, what do you say? I say, listen, what I want to talk about, you know, is race and the first black president and what that means. And they said, okay, well, can you sketch that out a little bit more? I said, okay. All right, I want to talk about four or five different incidents, Trayvon Martin, Henry Louis Gates, where, you know, Ferguson, points where, you know, he really had to make decisions. <clears throat> and they said, okay. But obviously that's not where we ended up. And it was pretty clear after the first interview that that's not where we were going to end up. So even in the first one, I was I had been reading Dreams of My Father, and I knew I was very, very interested in, like, how, from his perspective, like, he had become the first black president. Like, what happened, you know? Um, and so that was, like, big for the first one. In the second one, we spent, like, a long time talking about reparations and policy. And then in the third one, I wanted to talk about how he came to identify as black. Like, why he didn't. And not even just, like, being biracial, but, like, having traveled the world, why didn't you become, as I say in the piece, like, just, you know, this kind of raceless, you know what I mean, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why'd you why'd you go to Chicago? Why run to it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like running into the fire. Why would you do that? <laughs> you know? Um, and that was a great conversation. That that The problem is that that one has the worst audio, but it was a great conversation. We literally on Air Force One talking about this. Um and so, yeah, and then, you know, after Trump won, in fact, before Trump won, I actually had a draft. I had a draft of the story um, that I had sent in. It was missing, like, maybe one section, but I had sent it in. And then Trump won. And under the stipulation, we all knew, by the way, too, it was always in the back of our minds that if Trump wins, we're going to have to restructure this. We were always thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the underlying driving narrative was different once Trump won? No, no, actually, that didn't change. It was like the shading changed. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you think about, like, the first scene, right, you go to this party, right, and it was much, the scene was much more celebratory, mm-hmm. and I just, you know, you change a few words, and you just shade it so that this is kind of tragic, actually. You know what I mean? Like, you're saying goodbye, and you actually don't know how much you're actually saying goodbye. Yeah. You know? So, the shading changed. You know, I was going to say, like, so there's a section in there that, which goes through all the racist, you know, shit that happened with the president. I was always going to say, like... And that, you know, sort of ended with, you know, the nomination of Donald Trump. But then it just became more. Then it became president. You know, so all of that was there. The last section came together the last minute. The stuff about my dad, which I like, literally happened like, uh, you know, the day that we had our last interview. So if that, I think we had our last interview on Thursday and I think the piece closed on. I think it shipped on Sunday. So mm-hmm. it was like really, really, really last minute. You, mm-hmm. you said when we talked previously that a lot of times you like to backload stuff in pieces yeah, and to like yeah, right towards something so what was that i thought it might be your dad's it was the file it was is what what was how did you kind of drive it towards that um that's interesting well so it's probably less calculated this time i think there's a sense of like like when i was writing the story you should like i was i felt like i was writing a sad story 
And in some sense, I guess I felt like I was writing a tragic story. And this is like stuff that isn't in the piece, but as you like, it's swirling in your head when you're writing. How do I put this? I thought I was writing about a piece about a gifted, good person, like a really good human being that was in a somewhat untenable situation. Or let's just say tragic situation. I probably can boil this down a little bit more, but I'm thinking my way through it. That's why, you know, it begins with that Gatsby quote. You know what I mean? So I thought like like there should be some sense of tragedy. Like and I think and I don't I want to say this without being condescending. I think like even now, like the president didn't quite understand like how much danger he was in. And I don't mean physical danger. I mean like these guys are sharks. Like these guys are sharks. He didn't understand like it was sharks. You know, all around him. I feel like that never quite got through. And, you know, he said in the interview, like when he went to DC, they were surprised that these guys didn't want to work with them. And so the angle of tragedy is you had to be this thing in order to become president. You had to be this way in order to become the first black president. But once you got there, the fact that you were that thing was actually why you're surprised. Mm -hmm. And also the mere fact that you're a black president unleash these forces right, right, that right. then right. serve to try to work right. against everything right. that you thought you would accomplish right. by getting there. That right, way. and you never saw it coming. You never, like, you never really, and he didn't. He didn't. He never saw it coming. And I think even today, I mean, this is not in the piece, but I think even today, like, he, he still underestimates it because from his perspective, he was saying, he did say, this is the result of Fox News conditioning people a, a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of true, but uh, another way of, you know, seeing that is like, because his perspective is, listen, when I was in Illinois, it wasn't like this. My perspective on that is you weren't president, and being president actually means something. And it's true that Fox News may be conditioning people, but people are watching, like they're getting something out of it. So even now, like, I, I feel like he didn't quite get to that, and that was tragic. And so the stuff with my dad, I thought crystallized that, because like, here's the government. I don't want to say actively trying to kill my dad, but definitely trying to get other people to do it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, actually, FBI actually trying to get other people to Did kill. Did you know any of that before the file? Uh, I had a vague sense that it had happened because my dad had this vague sense that the FBI had done things. And what he said to me, like, afterwards, once we got the stuff in our possession was, you know, I had gone out to California to be with, you know, the other Panthers, and I, I couldn't understand why they were so hostile to me. Like, I couldn't quite get it. You know what I mean? I didn't know... You know, what was going on? My dad, you know, he, he eventually, you know, left and, you know, came back to Baltimore. But he said, I, I couldn't. He said, and it's so, it fits now. Like, it really all fits, you know. I, I was unaware, but I had some sense that the FBI was doing some things that, you know. So it was, like, vague. You know what I mean? It's like, I think they're watching me sort of stuff. You know, but not, you know, like, crazy paranoia, but, like, I think somebody's doing something here. Yeah. You know. And just to say, I mean, hopefully people have read the piece, but, I mean, what the file shows is that literally they were undermining... Yeah, by yeah, spreading. yeah, 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 yeah. So they they sent you know they send this letter to uh, Huey P. Newton, you know, who's leader of the Black Panthers at the time, you know, basically saying that my dad was a police informant that something should be done, you know, he should be dealt with, you know what I mean, in some some sort of way. And I also got the letter that the FBI agent actually sent to Hoover. And so this is not see this this ain't <laughs> no disrespect, but this ain't a guy I found in Chicago. You know what I mean? It's not it's not that. This is not. Um, slavery 150 years ago. This is not a lynching victim. This is your father. You know what I mean? And the, who the government tried to put in mortal danger. You know, um, the government within living memory. You know what I mean? Not 100 years ago. 
you know? And so when the president says that to somebody like that, when he says, no, 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 I, every, there's safeguards in place, da 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 it's like, that to me, I guess, personified, like, I guess the, the, the kind of tension that, that's always in that piece. Guy grows up, you know, distant, you know, from the sort of experience that the Black Panthers were dealing with. I mean, just to give this some context, you know, um, as I say in the piece, you know, my dad grew up desperately poor in, in Philadelphia. His father is, like, killed on the street while he's, like, begging for a cigarette or something. Uh, his grandfather, who he never knew, is, like, crushed to death in a meatpacking plant. I mean, just dad goes off to Vietnam, gets radicalized in Vietnam, you know, joins the Panther Party, you know, and, and joins the struggle. And Obama grew up very, very distant from that struggle, right? So it's, it's easy for him to say it'll be okay, mm-hmm. you know? But when they literally tried to kill your dad... I mean, you're scared. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You're really, really scared yeah. because it's not theoretical to you. It's not theoretical. It's not distant. It's not the deep past. It's not any of that. You know what I mean? It's very, very, very present in your life. And so I thought like that was like the personification of that was like all of it at, you know, at, at a head, the kind of tension I was working through, through throughout that piece. You know, um, it really came to a head in, in that for me. Mm-hmm. And you could sort of, I feel like it also feeds into like looking at that party and the way you're describing rewriting that party because yeah. you could look at like the fact that you were at that party right. or that you are getting to interview the president right. or even that, I mean, there's a crazy moment that you're going with the president to Howard University, right. which you dropped out of right, right. <laughs> to right. see him give a speech. Oh, I was insane. And you could say- and He mentioned me in the speech. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. He, he mentioned said he me. shouted out to alumni and I was wondering if you- Yeah, were... yeah, he did. He mentioned me right in the Black Panther in the speech. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> I'm trying to be a reporter there, you know. <laughs> but there's a way to read those, uh, to think about that story as like, wow. And, then, you know, I'm interested in like, what does it feel like in those moments? Like you struggled earlier in your life, in your career. And like suddenly you're, you're in this moment at this college that you at one point dropped out of. Right. And here you are. You're getting mentioned right. in the president's speech. <laughs> right. That's a wonderful story. For graduation, by the way. For graduation. <laughs> like other people are graduating. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but then are the whole time, are you thinking this underlying thought that is what you were just talking about that's in the piece, which is like, this is all tenuous. I know this is all tenuous. Yeah, I am. I, yeah, 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 I am. That was what, I mean, I was, you know, that's wrapped up in me dropping out. I mean, yeah, it is. It is. And beautiful. Like, that's, see, that's the whole thing that I'm, I'm, I was trying to get across, you know, in, in the story. Um, it's tenuous and it's tragic and it's beautiful. I mean, that party was gorgeous. I mean, it was just, and, and not just like physically gorgeous. I mean, it is something to be there. And literally, you know, when that dude says, when Jesse Williams says, look where we are. I mean, he was like mystified. Like he was like, I, I can't believe this. Like slaves were toiling. <laughs> like, yeah, and here we are. You know, people are yelling, say it loud, say it. You know, I'm black. I'm, I mean, really? At the White House? Like this is actually, that's a thing that actually happened. And you can't, I feel like it's very dangerous to be dismissive of that moment. You know what I mean? I do think that means something. It just might not mean enough, you know, ultimately. But it does mean something, and it's what gives it all the edge of tragedy. You see, if it's just all bad, what's tragic? What was lost? You know, if the last past eight years was just a waste, there was no beauty, there was no anything, what, what's the story then? What's the story? Then you leave it to the people to write their 5,000-word harangues about how, you know, horrible you know, the Obama administration was. There's no reason for me to go and sit for all of that time to talk to somebody. There's nothing complicated there. Mm-hmm. You know, if the past eight years were just complete, you know, ineffectiveness, ineptitude, what 
what is there to talk about? What's the tension? What's the story? You know what I mean? And so um, that beauty to be in one place and then to know that literally, you know, the same forces that made that beauty possible, you know, endangered the life of your father. I mean, you know what I mean? Like that, 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 that's heavy. That's heavy, you know, and that, that was what I was trying to balance. You know, I, I think about there was a moment and I want to say it was uh, the second inauguration of Ulysses S. Grant. Invite a bunch of black people to the uh, inaugural ball, which was something that had never really happened before. And Grant and his, some of the white officers dance at the ball with the wives of some of the black officers. Hmm. And this was like, do you know what I mean? Now, what happened after that was a hundred years of just terrorism. I mean, that's basically what happened. You know, what followed that, if you look at it from a policy perspective. But still, you think about that moment and you're like, man, I would have loved to have seen that. You know? Um, that too is part of the story. Even what, though, what, like, I, I don't believe, you know, like, it invalidates. Do you know what I mean? I don't believe it makes it mean nothing. I just don't, I don't think that. I think part of the tragedy is that it does mean something and that things are really lost. You know, real things are actually lost and so i was trying to get you know i'm I'm talking about this and i'm wishing i had more time to write that piece i wish it was tight evan it was tight it was tight i wish i'd had more time man what's your view on the the where to find that beauty in the trump story is that i mean do you feel like you're going to that's a great question writing about that yeah that's a great question i don't know yet i I don't don't know i almost want to take a break but i I don't i don't know yet but I, i i bet i bet as with anything, the beauty is in the reporting. I mean, you can sit back here and say, and I'm speaking as a storyteller now, right? Like not, you know, from the perspective of politics. You could sit here and say, oh, it's horrible that these people voted for Trump. It's horrible that he, you know, ran this campaign, started with birtherism, went to this anti-Muslim stuff, went to, you know, the, the misogyny. And at the very least, people did not find it disqualifying. And I think you actually have to say that. But I want to see who those people are. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if I'm your story editor, and maybe even if I'm the writer, like, if, you know, this direction I go, like, what what are their lives like? Specifically, individually. And what's it been like over the past, you know, 30 years? And whenever you do that, you find beauty. You just always, I mean, I hate that it sounds really, like, uh, sentimental, but it's true. It's true. Whenever you go, you know, to the, the, the specific, the particular, you know what I mean? You, you find beauty, you know? And so um, my expectation is, is that, yeah, that would be there too, you know? Um, I think a lot of people talk about writing off the quote-unquote white working class and, you know, like by being condescending and da-da-da-da-da. And I, I, you know, I don't have much appetite for that as an explanatory force in electoral politics. As a journalist, obviously, you cannot do Maybe not, obviously. As a journalist, you cannot do that. You cannot. No, it would not do me any good to write 10, 15,000 words about, you know, why white working class people voted for Trump and not go see some of that. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so, I think, I find it doubly depressing uh, after the election to then have this, like, very acrimonious but superficial debate about who those people are. Right. And, people sort of performatively wanting to demonstrate how right. connected to the working class oh, they are. Sick. And it's just like, sick. none of it is, uh, and there's also an assumption that all the writing that's happening is like meant to convince people in one way or yeah, the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of back to the sort of yeah. solutionism 
uh, question in and, and here's the writing. thing. The margin of victory was so small. If Hillary wins, is that stuff then not true? Do you understand? Like, it was small enough that, like, it could have went the other way. So if it does, is all of that invalidated? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is yeah. it just, is it only right because, you know, you know, a few, you know, places flipped? Yeah. Well, you know, you know it's what I, mean? like, like, what? I think I think mentioned this. Actually, I maybe talked about this when I interviewed Nate Silver in a previous incarnation. But it reminds me of the thing that I find so funny about sports broadcasting, right. which is like if the game comes down to a buzzer beater, right. if the team makes it, some right. guy afterwards will say it's all about <laughs> rebounding. They out rebounded him by 10 rebounds. But if right. they miss it, right. they'll say it was all about something else. Right. It's like or a your horrible frame. shot becomes a great shot because he made it. <laughs> Because he was a great shot. That clearly shows, you know what I mean, grit. And he wanted the ball at the last moment. And it's clear that, I mean, but maybe he made a horrible shot. Yeah. You know, the Nate Silver comparison is is really good because, I mean, I think, like, people are mad at, like, 538 and all these places. Why didn't you tell us? You know, And they don't understand probability. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, they were always saying, listen, there's a chance this could happen. You know, even if it's 80, 20, 20 does happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, that kind of takes me back to when we talked before, We the last time it was kind of in this period of when actually Jonathan Chait had written something mm-hmm. about saying you weren't as optimistic you used to be and where was the hope. I wonder and how Jonathan Chait is now. That's that, what I want to ask him. I should ask him. That's my question. Yeah, are, you, are you sort of like, you dig those articles, those blog posts back up I and say, I have it. I wouldn't. Look you know, whose pessimism <laughs> was justified. No, no, no. I don't. I don't. Um, and I, I don't know if I said this in the, long, in the last one, but I, I, I really admire Jonathan's writing and always have. You know what I mean? I always have. And that was sort of one of the reasons why I was so eager to pick up the fight. You know what I mean? Because, I, I you know, I have... I have great admiration for how he writes. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I asked that question to the president. I mean, you talk about optimistic, and he was stunningly still optimistic. I couldn't. And to me, that's like great tension. I mean, listen, only weeks ago, you were telling us this guy wasn't fit to run a 7-Eleven. Yeah. You know, and now he's president. Now he's the leader of the free world. You know what I mean? How How can you be optimistic about that? You know, and at some point... Maybe you just got to make a leap of faith and stop trying to explain it and say that's who he has to be. That's just, there's just no other way, you know, uh, of being when you're president. I don't know. I don't know. Well, do you at all buy into this grander notion of uh, it's all progress, we're just zigging and zagging? No. I mean, that's basically what he said. No, no, no. I think it's chaos. That's what I think. I buy into chaos. I buy into And this might turn out not as bad as people think it will. Or it could turn out significantly worse, you know. Um, we just don't know. We, we we just don't know. So no, I don't. I don't buy into that at all. I don't. And where are you with, uh, you know? I read this quote earlier of how you've been struggling to write and fit and sort of facing this expectation of prophecy and yeah. you're going to weigh in and. Uh, where are you with that now? Like, you know, it's funny. You know what I realized as I talked to you? It just caused me to retreat back to what I, I, I always did a lot of. And that is, you know, like I started as a long-form journalist. I actually don't have a problem doing that stuff. Like I don't feel it's more the, like opining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe like in, in this small way, it was good because it stopped me from doing that. You know, and people hunger for it. I mean, I get people on my Twitter feed, oh, we need you to do that. You need you to do But that's not... That was never my game. It was never what I, I came here to do. It was never what I loved. It was fun. But the minute, it, you know, it went to the level of prophecy. Like, the minute people, 
I don't know. The minute it felt like people were like really, really using it, like I, I, I don't know. It just felt like too much. It mm-hmm. felt like too much. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because see, I changed my mind all the time. That's the other thing. I mean, all of this stuff is in process, you know. And so, I don't know. It's a different thing. I mean, I struggle with this even with the long form, honestly, though, because like one of the things that happened with Between the World and Me is it became this whole debate about why white people read Between the World and Me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so frustrating. It's like, we're not even talking about the book. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're just talking about why, you know, a group of people have decided that it's interesting, you know? And it, like, became signaling. And I'm in, like, this Saturday Night Live sketch. And to, you know, the way you show that you're hip and you, you know, do whatever is you flash between the world. I mean, I'm like, how did I become this? Like, <laughs> what the hell? But one of the things I think that I got to get clear on is that's kind of not up to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you just keep writing and how that stuff gets seen at any point in time is probably not up to you. You know, you just have to do what, what, what's most in your heart. And I think maybe the opining wasn't much in my heart. Well, like, we didn't even talk about the up. house. I mean, which is yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah. a slightly different thing. That's more like Yeah, a, but related. That's like a celebrity <laughs> thing almost. Um, but that seemed to encapsulate this, uh, for me, just having known you for a few years, this sort of impossible position of then having people know who you were and then trying to say there's certain aspects of this I don't want and then having people say oh you don't want like how could how could you you not reject this how are you gonna reject this everybody's talking about your house isn't it great how how dare you (laughs) yeah right right, like you made all this money you got this house right 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 deal with it deal with it deal with it it. and also like um, you know the weirdest thing was I was on I'm not on Facebook now but I was on Facebook at that time and I would go to my feed and there were people bragging about it in my feed I was like do you not understand they just published my address do you not get this you know what i mean like and it it was like um i mean i've said this publicly now so i I can say this um you know my wife is in is in med school and is deeply deeply concerned with with, with reproductive rights and so i was like scared for her i actually wasn't scared for me that's that's like at the time like that's like i was thinking about her down the line you know what i mean i just didn't want that information out there like that they went to my son's Instagram, man. It was crazy. The realtor on the other side talked to the press. And then when I called him, he said he didn't talk to the press. And then he called back and said, well, I was in surgery and I was on OxyContin. And I don't know what I said to who. It was insane. It was insane. <laughs> it was absolutely insane, man. I mean, it got crazy. And then it was like, well, this isn't a home. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a house I own, but it's clearly not. And the way they picked it up was like, you know, it was a neighborhood blog that wrote about it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, these people are watching me? Like, they're actually, like, watching me? Like, no, nah, I can't. That's not home. That's not home. That's a house I live in, but it's not It's not home. And when we had lived in the neighborhood before, you know, we had rented, you know, an apartment and a beautiful, beautiful area of Brooklyn. It's just gorgeous. The homes are just gorgeous and it's very communal and they had these awesome block parties and i was looking forward to that and i was looking forward to being part of the community and i mean i guess i was somewhat naive about all of this as i'm listening to myself talk but i was looking forward to being part of that and then what i realized was like oh like i probably can't like be at my block party because people are going to be asking me about between the world and me you know what i mean or people are going to be like asking for things as they always do you know now now you know so i can't really do that. You know, I was talking to another writer recently and, you know, he's a pretty, you know, more than me, like an aggressive, opinionated writer. And he was saying how sometimes like he wants to go to protest just to check, take the temperature. And I said, you don't go? He said, I can't go. He said, it alters everything. I can't go. I just don't go. 
I said, man. But, you know, part of me was not surprised. Like, you just can't. I mean, things happen all the time that I would like to just show up at. You know, like, I haven't been to, like, a party in a really, in a long time. <laughs> in a long time, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and the last time I was there, a friend of mine and his wife, like, basically was, like, bodyguarding me. You know what I mean? And not like somebody was going to do something to me, but people will pigeonhole you and they will sit there and talk for, like, 40 minutes about, you know, their thesis that they're working on or whatever. <laughs> And I was like, damn, I can't even really go to parties anymore. Okay, all right, that's 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 for right now. You know, for right now. Now here's the thing. I mean, would I trade it away? Yeah. You know, is that what I'm saying? And no. No, I would not. I would not. I would not. You know, I work really, really hard on this work. I'm happy it's being read. I would be doing it whether it was being read or not, but I am happy that it's being read and I will have to learn how to adjust. I'll just have to adapt. There's no other way. I mean, because the other thing is, you know, you think that because you win at certain things, like there's no price attached to it. But that's not how the world works. You know, that's not how the world works. And you should always remain conscious that it can all go away, you know, and you can go back to where it was before. Like, that's a thing that can happen, you know. And it doesn't mean you got to be grateful, you know, towards, you know, people or like not honest or anything like that. But, you know. You should be grateful to be so lucky. You know what I mean? You should recognize the fact that, 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 that you are lucky, you know, even amidst, you know, the things that you don't like. Well, if it all goes back to the way it was before, you could still come on the podcast. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You always why have, I have this. no fear. That's why I have no fear. Maybe one day people will stop reading what I write, but I will always write, you know, the way I write. You know, I, I, if this ship goes down... I'm going down. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I will always be doing this and I will always, you know, thanks to you have a home here. So. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks. That's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Ta-Nehisi for taking time out of his busy schedule to come into the studio. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And to our editor this week, Mickey Capper and our intern, Courtney Harrell. As always, we thank our sponsors, Audible, Casper, and MailChimp. We are taking next week off, so that's it for 2016. Thanks to everyone for listening this year, and we'll see you next year. Happy holidays! Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.